This is a sermon from the Highlands Congregation of Park Church. We hope it helps you walk with the Lord and lead others to Christ. Learn more and find more resources at parkchurch.org. Good morning, Park Church. Today's reading comes from Psalm 114. In the Bibles in your pew, that would be page 510. We welcome anyone to take a Bible with them if you don't already have one. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of a strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back, the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains that you skip like rams, O hills like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water and the flint into a spring of water. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. We're excited that you all have, have joined us today. I uh, want to say this real briefly. Happy Father's Day to the fathers in the room. Woot, woot. Uh, biological fathers, uh, fathers via adoption or stepfathers, foster fathers, those who fill that role for people. We're so grateful for, for the way that you image our heavenly father, his sacrificial love for us. Um, I want to encourage you to keep pressing on, continue to rely on the Holy Spirit to change you. We model him imperfectly, and yet we want to continue, ask him to continue to shape us to look more and more like him to those we interact with. So happy Father's Day to all of you out there. Um, if you've been at Park for any length of time, uh, you know that summers are an amazing time for us because we always come back to the Psalms. So we started in Psalm 1 years and years ago. We're in Psalm 114 today. And uh, as Chris mentioned last week, uh, we're in a grouping of psalms called the Egyptian Hallel, or some have called this the Hallelujah of the Jews, right? It's Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 that typically were sung th about three times a year, also right uh, before and, and during and after Passover. And so Jesus would have sung this song uh, and the one before it, before Passover meal. So that's just an interesting fact. Um, these, these collection of songs are kind of their playlist, their star-spangled banner, if you will. This is like them celebrating their 4th of July as a country, uh, being liberated or freed from Egypt. And I believe that God has something for each of us today in Psalm 114. God has something for us today. We want to be attentive to God and what He has to speak to us. We're not just here to do a routine thing and check a, a, an item off of our list, but we want to meet with the God of the universe in His book, in His Word today. And so that's what we're after today. And so let me just pray for us real quick. He's here with us, but I want us to be attentive to Him as He speaks to us. Father, you, you gave us Psalm 114 for a purpose. You, you gave this psalm to build us up, to challenge us, to comfort us. Whatever it is, God, move today. Speak through this psalm. Reveal what you're like. Reveal who we are. And Spirit, we ask you uh, right now to open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. God, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Uh, would you do that right now? Would you meet us in your word? Would you help us see Jesus today in this psalm? We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, during the, the quarantine last year, a lot of us were kind of suddenly handed time that we didn't know what to do with, right? So some of us dove into the incredible saga called Tiger King. Um, 
you're still wondering if Carol Baskins did it, right? Uh, did she kill her husband or not? Totally think she did. Um, uh, another thing that my, my wife and I jumped full on into MCU. Does anybody know what MCU is? What is it? Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Marvel movies. Some of you guys are haters. Don't be a hater if you haven't watched through them all, right? But basically, we, we, uh, we had a lot of extra time, so we watched through the Marvel Cinematic uh, Universe movies in order. So kind of from beginning to end. And what happened was, is a lot of different superheroes and characters that I didn't know from the beginning that were somewhat one-dimensional to me, over time, as I learned their stories of origin, suddenly took on new significance for me. I understood why they were the way that they were. I understood their, their past. That shaped kind of how they operated and did things, both their brokenness but also their beauty, like how they operate in their superpowers, right? And this is going to be kind of a cheesy comparison, but life is a lot like the Marvel Cinematic Universe as well. As we begin to realize that all of us, like those characters, are storied. We are all a storied people. These stories that we carry within us and rehearse on a day-to-day basis can shape us for good or for evil. Not only do uh, stories happen to us, but also in turn we take up stories that live within us and influence our everyday lives. We take them on and put them on like glasses. They become our interpretive lens for how we live our lives. Stories that make sense of the world that we live in, that lead us toward our understanding of a happy or a whole life. Those are the stories that govern our steps. We resemble what we rehearse. We resemble the stories that we rehearse. And so think about it. We are a storied nation. Uh, The U.S. didn't show up in a historical vacuum, but came from somewhere. There are beautiful elements to the story of our country, but also some awful elements to our story as a country that we're still continuing to see repercussions to this day. We peddle stories as a nation. The American dream. Everybody should have this dream. But wait, what if it's not my dream? Not only are our, our country's story, but also we're born into storied families. Families pass down stories of who we are, where we came from. Some of these stories are explicit. Some of these stories are implicit. What's like the first thing that happens when you go to counseling? Your counselor basically grills you on your family history. Where did you come from? None of us come from a vacuum. As the wise sage Pete Scazzaro mentioned, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa and grandma are in your bones. Your history, your family history is in your bones. Not only that, we're also stored individuals. We live by story. We see by story. Not only have things happened to us, but then we use stories to help us understand the world around us. We're constantly interpreting by story. And just like us, Israel was a storied people. They were a storied country. They had a long history with God that was full of stories. So if you know the Bible, the books of Moses, the Torah was their story of origin as a country. Where did they come from? Why is there evil in the world? What's our purpose here? Where are we going? What's, what's the purpose of the world? All of these were revealed in story and narrative in the Bible, in these first five books of the Bible. And I, I want to ask you to listen to me right now. The problem happens in this book, and also with us, when Israel starts remembering and rehearsing the wrong stories. The problem starts when Israel starts remembering and rehearsing the wrong stories. Stories that either exclude God or paint God in a different light than he really is. Stories that paint us 
in a different light than we really are. So think about it from the first story of origin that we find in the Bible, right? Adam and Eve are in the garden. And what happens? This little serpent comes out, right? I feel like a kung fu fighter right now. But like, um, story comes, uh, the serpent comes out, right? And says, and basically offers an alternate story. Did God really say this? Is God really kind to you? Does does God really want your best? And that was the question. Ultimately, since that time, we've all dealt with a war of stories. It's a battle of narratives for our hearts. For our hearts. It's a battle of narratives. What stories will we believe? What stories will we rehearse? Are we believing false narratives about life and who we are and who God is? Or are we believing the true narrative about who we are? We're just as prone to wander. And so, so we come to Psalm 114 today. And Psalm 114 is all about the need and importance of rehearsing this true story. The story that God is telling. So just before we, we jump into Psalm 114 verse 1, I want to mention a couple things about Psalm 114, its structure and, and what it is. Um, and, and I want to say this, that Psalm 114 is a reminder— that just like all of the Psalms are, they're poetry, God loves poetry. God loves poetry. Psalm 114 is a poem. That might sound obvious, but listen to me right now. When I tried to study this for this sermon, you, I couldn't speed read through it. I was like, this isn't easy to understand right away, right? There's a lot of things going on in here. This is poetry. Poetry is literally designed to be read slowly and thoughtfully. Isn't it amazing that God chose to give us a bunch of different genres in this book, and one of those includes poetry. God wants to speak to us through poetry. Often we, we kind of can treat poetry like a second-class citizen in the church, right? Poetry, ah, it's hard to understand, whatever. Just give me prose, give me theology, give me doctrine, right? That's easy to understand, right? Not the case. God loves Poetry. Prose is great, but poetry gets at our imagination, our affections, our emotions, and God knows that. I'm in a a book club that just started up. Holla, when's the last time you guys were in a book club? Want to give a shout out to our book club right now. We meet on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Every other Thursday, if you want to jump in, we're reading through this book on the Psalms called Open and Unafraid. I want to quote something from it. It says this. Uh, Author David Taylor says this. Poetry is a native language of God and of the people of God. It is a mother tongue of the Word incarnate on whose lips the psalmist's words came naturally. And it is the medium of art by which the author of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, instructs us to address God by the way of prayers and praises of the psalms. At its best, good poetry makes the familiar strange and the strange familiar. We all need the arts. We all need poetry. In this psalm, we find the psalmist employing a few poetic devices to immerse us in the story of the Bible. And so I'm going to focus on two of the the devices that he uses in this this, uh, psalm, in this poem. Uh, And the first one is this. It's called parallelism. Can you say that with me? Parallelism. So parallelism, right? When we think of poems today in the West, we often think of rhyming. Oh, that's a poem. It like rhymes and stuff. And that's what a poem is. When the Jews thought of poetry, the most common characteristic for them was parallelism. In a sense, think of it like call and response. It's a conversation between lines on a page where the first line calls out to the next line. And sometimes the second line will kind of restate what the first said. That's called synonymous parallelism. Other times it'll say the exact opposite. That'll be antithetical parallelism. 
parallelism. There are a few other kind of parallelisms kind of that are used in the Bible, but those are a couple that we'll see in this passage. The beauty of parallelism is this, similar to what I mentioned about poetry, it forces us to slow down. It's built in like a grammatical speed bump. We're all about efficiency in our culture. Say what you want in the least amount of words, but not in the Psalms. They keep repeating themselves. Keep repeating themselves. Parallelism is a means of repetition, of meditation, of immersion. There really couldn't be a better example of Hebrew Hebrew parallelism in the Psalms than Psalm 114. Every line in the Psalm has its counter line. And so that's one thing to pay attention as we read it. Uh, The second device that that, that this uh, poet uses is a chiasm. So parallelism and the chiasm. So uh, this has to do with the structure of the poem, how it was written. And chiasm comes from the word X, or from the letter X. And it's kind of like, it functions like the the one half of the letter X. And so if you think about it, this, uh, if you you go back to like English class or whatever, and you're studying poems, right? This kind of takes on an A, B, B, A structure, right? So A, and then here's the middle part of the X, B, B, and then back to A. And so in the A part of this, of this uh, psalm, we see that, that it emphasizes God and his work on behalf of his people. So that's the A, and that's like the, the front and the back end. And then the middle two parts are actually also mirror parts of one another. And it, it's the response of creation to this God from the A parts, right? So it's like God and his work and the BB are, are, are uh, the response of creation to this God. And, and it's a reminder of this, that God will use everything at his disposal to engage us, to engage our hearts, and that includes language and grammatical structure. God knows that we need to be restored. He knows that we need to be restoried, if you will. In this war of stories, God knows that we need to be restoried day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and it'll continue until the day we die. Poetry and songs are means of doing just that. And so Psalm 114 reminds us that the arts matter, literature, poetry, fiction, musical, uh, music, visual arts, all of these are gifts from God that he can use to meet with us and speak to us. And so it's why we have artwork out in the foyer. We've called our, our visual artists to step in, so graphic designers, photographers, uh, painters are all trying to help immerse our imagination in the Bible. And that's why we do what we do. All right, we're going to jump into verse 1, Psalm 114. Uh, I'm going to make three observations um, and kind of the, the general flow just to, for you to know where I'm going. Uh, I'm going to make one point about the first letter A, one point about the two Bs, and then one final one about the last A. So that's my, my flow. Three main points. The first point is this. Psalm 114 reveals a God who stops at nothing to deliver and dwell amongst his people. Psalm 114 reveals a God who stops at nothing to deliver and dwell among his people. Let's look at verse 1 and 2. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a land, or sorry, from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. So this psalm starts with a bang. It starts right in the middle of a story. It says, when Israel went out from Egypt. It doesn't give us any past story. There's a ton of stuff that just happened right before. It doesn't mention Joseph kind of being like sold into slavery into Egypt. It doesn't mention the famine in the land. It doesn't mention that Jacob moved his whole family into Egypt. It doesn't mention 400 years of bitter slavery where they're being oppressed. It doesn't mention Moses being raised up. It doesn't mention the plagues. It just says kind of casually, when Israel went out from Egypt. This is amazing. It starts in, like, if you've ever watched the movie where it starts with this huge action scene right at the beginning, and you don't even know what's going on. It's like this fog, bullets are flying. You're like, wait, what's going on? Who's killing who right now? 
And then later on, the movie explains it. That's what's happening right here, right? You're a bit disoriented, but hopefully you're familiar with the Exodus story. If not, I want to encourage you to read the book of Exodus or watch The Prince of Egypt. Um, All right, quick background on Egypt. When Israel went out from Egypt, who was Egypt? They were the superpower of the day. They were the resident global bully. Pharaoh was seen as the most powerful person on the planet. The gods of Egypt were seen as the ruling deities. Israel's being oppressed by this Egypt. Uh, Egypt was the people of a strange language. And ultimately, this is saying that Israel, when they're saying they're amongst a people of strange language, Israel's saying we are being oppressed, we're alienated, we're in exile, we're alone, we're abandoned, we need help. We need help. So as the story goes, Israel cries out to God. God hears their cries. He raised up for them. Moses. Moses steps onto the scene, and then after a few years, he comes back to Egypt, confronts Pharaoh, right? And then one by one brings about plagues that ultimately deal with the Egyptian deities of the day. And then finally, Pharaoh's like, go, get out of here. Let 2.5 million of you go. You're upholding our economy, but we're sending you out. We don't want you here anymore. And so they're sent out. And so that's where verse 1 starts. That's the background for when Israel went out from Egypt. That was a miracle. That was a miracle. It doesn't stop with verse 1, but verse 2 says this. Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. So who's the his here? Judah became whose sanctuary, Israel whose dominion? It's interesting to say, this is God. God is almost assumed in this passage. It's not even told this is God. I think the first time we read God in this, in this is verse 7, right? But it's Judah became God's sanctuary. Israel was God's dominion. That's who God is. Well, who's Judah? This is referring to the tribe who kind of led the way in the wilderness march out of Egypt. It also probably represents all of Israel as a figurehead. But God pulls them out of their place of exile. But this is the amazing news. He doesn't get them out of jail and then say, Good luck in the wilderness. Let me know if you need anything else. Verse 2 says, God took up residence among them. God dwelt among them. They became his sanctuary. He, he was with them on a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Not only that, they were his dominion. He was their king. No longer was Pharaoh the ruling one. It wasn't Moses either. This was God ruling over his people, teaching them a new way of life. And from the Garden of Eden in Genesis to the Garden City that we read about in the book of Revelation, God's heart is and has always been to dwell amongst his people. And that's a picture of his heart right here. Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. We have such an uncommitted understanding of our relationship with other people and our friendships, with our church, with those around us, I think in Denver, it's like you invite somebody to something, then they'll let you know like maybe like five minutes before if they're going to come or not. Unless something else comes that's more appealing. Friendships are so easy to end now. People unfollow you online. People leave the church because they don't like a decision that's made. Marriages fracture and dissolve. And yet here we are met by this God who's incredibly faithful, who sets up residence among us. He's like, I'm not leaving you. I'm not canceling you. I'm committed to you to the end. And that's the God that we serve today. That's a good news for us and a people who are constantly bailing on each other. God never bails on us. We can count on him. He is eternally and covenantally present. All right. 
We're going to move on from the A. We're going to move on to these two B sections right now. Let's read them in verse 3 and 4. The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams. The hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? O mountains, that you skip like rams? O hills like lambs? And this leads us to our second point right now. Nothing in creation can stop God or keep us from his love. Nothing in creation can stop God or keep us from his love. Just as Egypt was no obstacle for God and his power, so we move into the next portion of the psalm, and we see that nature and creation aren't an obstacle for God either. So it's almost like you beat the leader on like level one of the video game, and here we are stepping into like level two, right? We've got these elements of creation. We've got the sea. We've got the river. We've got the, the mountains. We've got the hills. And these are four characters that the psalmist introduces in this to us. And this is, uses another device, poetic device, called personification, right? It's, it's when you take something that isn't alive and you write it as if it were alive, right? And that's what's happening right now. The, the, the sea suddenly has eyes, right? It's looking at Israel and the God who's amongst Israel because he's dwelling amongst them. And what is the sea doing? The sea is fleeing. So this wet thing is becoming dry, right? Miracles are happening in the presence of God. Jordan is a reference to Jordan River, Right? When, when, so, and basically, if you know anything about the history of Israel, you know that their history is bracketed by water miracles, right? They're led out of Egypt through a water miracle, the Red Sea parting, right? So Egypt is tracking them down. They're like on these chariots, right? It's like really modern, like military kind of movement there from, from Egypt. And like Israelites are like, we're, we're in trouble. So they're kind of like looking to the right and then to the left. Like, okay, it's like a terrible would you rather game, right? Would you rather die by drowning? or die by sword, right? Or being trampled by these chariots, right? Neither of them sound like a good option. And yet this God who's made a sanctuary amongst his people does what? He parts the sea. He parts the sea for them. So this wet thing becomes dry. On the other end is the Jordan River. They're trying to get into the promised land and God stops the flow, right? It says right here, Jordan turned back. It's almost like if you're, for personifications, like the river's walking, all of a sudden it's like... It's so doing this other thing. I was just, actually, I see the carriers are here. Um, there was a baptism yesterday. We were up at Clear Creek. Um, so Anava was, was baptized yesterday. It's this massive river, right? And yet, if all of a sudden the water just stopped, I'll be like, river, why are you doing what you're doing, right? And that's what the psalmist is ultimately doing. It's a reminder at the beginning of the end of, of, of Israel's Exodus story, that God is faithful to the work, to complete the work that he started in us. He got them out of Egypt, and he will com complete the work that he started in them. He's the alpha, he's the omega, he's the beginning, the end, he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. It's interesting, verse 4 is kind of fascinating as well. It's really weird, actually. The mountains skipped like ramps, right? I was just in Colorado. I saw like Bridalville Falls, right? I don't exactly picture the mountain range going, dum, 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 skipping like ramps. I don't think lambs or rams skip like this either, but, but what is this referring to? We know that it's a response of these mountains, these, these things that seem really stable to us here in Denver. So you look at, at the foothills and all the mountain ranges that follow it, right? There's nothing more stable and set than a mountain range. And yet suddenly, these immovable things in the presence of God are movable. So these wet things are becoming dry. These immovable things are moving in the presence of the God who set up residence with his people. 
What's behind this movement of the mountain? I think most commentators seem to think he's alluding to Mount Sinai. So if you know about Mount Sinai, God's people were led after the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. That's where they received the law of God. That's where they enter into covenant with God's people. And it's interesting that in Exodus 19, we're told that two things are trembling. One, God's people were trembling in the presence of God. Lightning and thunder is happening. And it also says that the mountain was shaking greatly. It was trembling greatly. Creation was shaking in the presence of God. The sea looks at God and flees. Jordan's flow halts. The mountain and hills are trembling in the presence of God. We don't know if it's like a joyful response to the God of the universe or if it's similar to like if I saw like a flock of rams or sheep and I just ran into the middle of them, what would happen? They like scatter, right? Is that the picture? We don't know. All we know is that nature is responding to the God who created nature, who made creation, who created all of those things because he's in their midst. All right, verses five and six. This is the second B in the chiasm. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? O mountains, that you skip like rams? O hills, like lambs? It seems to be a repetition of the prior two verses, but with some changes, right? It builds on the back of it, but there are two main changes. One of those is this, that it turns the statements into questions. Suddenly the psalmist is interrogating nature. He's talking to nature. Why are you doing this, see? River, what's up? Mountains, what's going on? Hills, what are you doing? Right? These are rhetorical questions that he's asking. The second thing that changes is notice the verb tense. Verses 3 and 4, past tense. The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. Mountains skipped like rams. The hills like lambs. Verse 5, present tense. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? O mountains, that you skip like rams? O hills like lambs? By moving to the present tense, the psalmist is representing or representing these past stories. He's taking these stories from the past, he's uprooting them from the soil there, and he's digging them and planting them into the present, saying, Israel, do you see now? You might have not even walked through that, but I want you to picture with me for a moment, interrogate with me for a moment, what might you have asked the Red Sea? I'm standing here on dry ground. These, these pillars of, of, of waves are standing on my side. God is upholding these things. Oh, Red Sea, why do you flee? Rivers, why do you turn around? Why do you turn back? Oh, mountains, why are you skipping like lands? Why are you shaking? Why are you trembling in the presence of God? And that's what this person is inviting us to do. One commentary says it this way. By means of those poetic devices, the poet recreates the excitement of the miraculous deliverance of Israel at the Red Sea. So the psalmist is trying to recreate the excitement of what happened then, now. That's what the psalmist is aiming to do. He's inviting us to use our imaginations, to actually interview and interrogate the elements as if we were witnesses then. And I think this, church, God is wanting to saturate our imaginations in his story to this reality that he's present with us. And that if he's present with us, anything is possible. Anything is possible. God makes a way where there was no way, where man comes up empty and dry. God can do miracle after miracle. It doesn't mean we always get our way, but God is fully capable. What is impossible for man is possible for God. It's possible for God. 
Nothing and no one can stop him. No one can keep his love from reaching us or making a way to us. I want to say this. We read it during our assurance of pardon, but nothing can keep us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no sea too large. There's no mountain too high. And I need you to hear me, hear me out. No sin is too great for God. There's no pattern of sin. There's no addiction that's too great for God. The same God that made a way in the wilderness for Israel makes a way for us. He loves us. Nothing can keep us from his love. Nothing. All right. The last point, point three. If one and two are true, if God stops at nothing to deliver us and dwell among us, and if creation can't stop him or keep his love from us, third point is this. We should stop at nothing to wonder and tremble before him. If those two things are true, if verses one through six are true, then this should be true. We should stop at nothing in our wondering before him and our trembling and awe before him. I want to read verses 7 and 8. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. And so again, this is the last section. So we went through the A section, the B, B. Now we're in the final A, which kind of mirrors the first one. It's about God and his special word for his people. It says, tremble, O earth. The psalmist calls us to tremble. If I told you, hey, uh, John, real quick, could you uh, tremble? I said tremble, right? It's like, we're like, okay. I'm, I'm trembling, you know, I'm trying to at least, right? It's kind of a strange thing, right? Uh, the word tremble is, is difficult to translate from the Hebrew. Uh, it means a few different things. It means either to writhe in pain, to tremble, like to in, in awe or reverence, or to be in labor, or to bring forth through labor. And so we can be fairly confident that God isn't saying, writhe in pain, oh people, right? That's, that's, not, that's not what he's saying, right? So he's calling us, in a sense, to some reverence, to some awe, be in awe, do actually what you saw creation doing. Creation was parting for him. The mountains were trembling in his presence. And this psalmist is saying, what about you? Are you going to tremble in his presence? Are you going to show that awe? A couple weeks ago, Matt Hand talked about the fear of the Lord. Now, when I say the fear of the Lord, many of us think in our culture, oh, fear is a bad thing. Fear isn't always a bad thing. Biblical fear is a beautiful, healthy, awe-filled activity. Not awful, awe-filled activity. And Matt, Matt defined fear of the Lord as this, living in the constant awareness of God, who he is, what he's done, or what he's doing and what he's promised. That's what it means to live in the fear of the Lord, to be in constant awareness. And I think this hits at a similar thing. I also want to say this, that trembling doesn't mean no rejoicing. Psalm 2 actually calls us to hold both of these together. Rejoice with trembling. It's, it's about a reverence and an awe for God. God's people are to be marked by a fear of the Lord and this beautiful trembling that the psalmist calls us to. In the same way that creation trembled before God, so we are included. I want to quote this from Tony Evans. He said this, If even creation is moved by God's power, how can weak and sinful humans do less than give him honor? A holy dread and awe of our creator should be the response of those who know the awesome might of God. And so I, I kind of was confronted with this question. Why don't we tremble more today? I want to ask you the question, why don't you tremble more before God? Because I have news for you. You're like, well, that's the Old Testament. Like the New Testament is like a totally different thing. Have you looked at 
John's response when he saw Jesus in the New Testament? It's like he like fell over dead. Boom, right? Trembling doesn't end in the New Testament, right? There's rejoicing with trembling, but, but trembling still happens. God is still as beautiful and as glorious. Now we come to see some aspects of God's mercy and grace in, in, a, in, a, in a new light in the New Testament, but this doesn't change as far as our call to tremble before him. I wonder if we don't tremble because we've lost our ability to remember and rehearse our story like Psalm 114 calls us to do. We haven't cultivated our imaginations before God. I want to say this. Awe is not automatic. I think we want it to be automatic. We want to wake up and just be like, hmm, good morning, world. I feel so much awe today, right? It doesn't happen that way. We need to be rehearsing this story as we read in the call to worship today. Um, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all his benefits. And then he goes on a list of like rehearsing what those benefits are. And we need to do that intentionally. The same God who parted the Red Seas is with us today. And sometimes we're just, we kind of carry about ourselves like a lazy attitude about this. Like, okay, whatever. Maybe one day awe will hit me. I'm full of awe. And we see an awe in the Bible for sure when people meet with God, but there must be a practice of awe and reverence and trembling in our hearts. And that happens through the rehearsal of our story. So as, as we're at home, as we're reading the word of God, we're asking, saying, God, like, baptize my imagination in this story. Let me know it. Let me know it. I want to know you more. And suddenly we'll become, oh my goodness, my heart is turning towards God. And this is, this is a reminder that when it comes to faith, often facts aren't enough. We got all the facts laid out. Great. Okay, I'm going to leave those behind. Facts aren't enough. This rehearsing means something for us. One commentator worded it this way. A great part of our duty in praise is to be worshiping historians. We're not worshiping historians. We are worshiping historians. So we are historians who worship God. And that's one of our duties, one of our calls as Christians is to remember our story I often think we want trembling and awe without any work, and that's just not how things work. There is work to be done. If we want to tremble before God, and in a sense, if we want to give birth to praise, give birth to worship, we need to do the work of an active worshiping historian. And another thing I want to talk about, why do we gather on Sunday mornings? Why are you here? Why are you here? Why do we gather in this place, right? One thing we talk about as, as, a, as a worship team is we gather for two reasons. We want to rehearse the story of the gospel and experience the God of the story. So we want to rehearse the story of the gospel. So we say our liturgy has like a gospel contour to it. We want every Sunday, we want to take people to Calvary and say, look at the cross. Look at this one who laid down his life for you. Look at the empty tomb. He died for you. He was raised for you. It has a gospel content. We want to rehearse that story. But not just that. That story from the past, we want to take it and plant it in the present. And we want to experience this God, the God of this story. We meet with him here. When we leave here, we should say, surely God is among us. Why? Because he is. He's here. He's here with us. And that's why we rehearse our faith is because we want to experience him. We want to tremble before him. So we're joining in Psalm 114's rhythms when we gather here on Sundays. It's amazing because some of you might say, well, 
The Jewish story isn't my story. I'm not a Jew. I'm a Gentile. Man, if you know anything about the Bible, we know that the Exodus story was all a prelude to what we would see fulfilled in the New Testament. There was a greater Exodus coming than the one we read about. This Exodus wasn't from a nation. It was from spiritual slavery. It's from sin and death. And Jesus came as this Moses figure, and he actually laid down his life as a Passover lamb for us. He laid down his life for us and then led us out of captivity through the Red Sea into new life. And this is the story that we're under. This is the story that we rehearse week in and week out. And so the Christian hallelujah ceases to merely be an Egyptian, Egyptian hallel, but begins to be a global hallel, one that we all declare. Every people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, everyone is invited into this story because this is what Jesus accomplished for us, for us. We rehearse it because we need it in our bones, we need it in our lungs. We took a trip a couple years ago to the Czech Republic, and uh, it was really powerful to hear about them fighting against communism. It was a very kind of uh, bloodless revolution that happened. I want to read this quote about the revolution that happened there. Uh, Vaclav Havel, a playwright who was also the president of the Czech Republic, was asked how the revolution to overthrow communism in the Czech Republic was bloodless and yet had experienced real staying power. He simply replied, we had our parallel society, and in that parallel society, we wrote our plays and sang our songs and read our poems until we knew the truth so well that we could go out into the streets of Prague and say, we don't believe your lies anymore. And communism had to fall. Communism had to fall. Do you see the same thing happening in here on a Sunday? Do you see and realize that it's in rehearsing this story as we, in a sense, write our plays and sing our songs and read our poems and read the scriptures? We want to know the, know the truth so well that when we leave here on a Sunday, the lies of the world will fall off us. We'll say, we don't believe your lies anymore. We're living in a parallel society. That's why we gather here on a Sunday. That's why it's so important for us to gather on Sundays. We're prone to wander like Israel. We operate like we're insane people because we believe a million fake stories about God and who we are. We need this time because we've been rehearsing all of these other false stories, believing all these lies, and God is trying to cleanse our imaginations and set us on the right trajectory again. And so when you come on a Sunday, man, I want to encourage you. God, help me remember my story. Help me remember that I'm a part of your true story. And help me remember that I'm a part of a people in this story. God, speak to me. And not just speak to me, speak through me to others. So you're here. The Holy Spirit might want to speak through you to somebody else. We gather not just to rehearse the story, but to experience the God of the story. And sometimes God wants us to experience him through other people. God might speak through you to other people. And that's part of what it means to be the body of Christ. We need each other. And that's part of what it means to come back to our true story. I want to wrap it up in verse 8. It says this. Who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. So all of the intensity, all the craziness of the psalm, all of these, these, these uh, creative elements that are, are doing things that other than they should, we're, we're confronted at the end with a kind gesture of God's provision for God's people. In the same way, there's two water miracles on the, on the, on the ends of their journey, right? So we're, we're brought into two water miracles that happened in the middle. Two water miracles. Exodus 7, Numbers 20. 
God's people found themselves dying of thirst in the wilderness. They're like, God, why have you brought us here? And what does God do? It's fascinating to see what God does. God tells Moses to strike the rock and speak to the rock. And from a dry place comes what? Water. From the dry places comes wetness. The wet places over here were dried up. The immovable things were moved. The impassable places were passable. And then here, the dry places are places where God provides us water. Isn't this the God that we serve? He loves us. He's present to provide for us. I don't know if you're in a a wilderness of your own and you're looking and you're saying, all I see are rocks and I'm tired and I have no water and I'm giving up. And the God that we serve is a God that brings water out of rocks. Not just enough for Moses, not just enough for Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, but for two and a half million people. That's crazy to think of. He provides. He's present. He's altogether good. He's altogether powerful. And I want to ask you, do you know this God? Do you know this reality? Do you know this story? And if you do know this story, would you commit yourself to remembering the story again and again, day in, day out, week in, week out, and see the transformation of God? Let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, thank you for, for Psalm 114. Thank you for the reminder that you are doing something that's bigger than us and bigger than our stories. And I pray that we would be a people who rehearse this story again and again and again. Um, God, I pray that you would even shine a light right now on some of the stories that we believe that are antithetical to your kingdom, that are not of you. And would you shine a light on those things? We don't want to be a part of those stories, God. We want to rehearse your story and live in line with your story. Would you aid us? Holy Spirit, we can't do this without your help. We're helpless without you. We need your presence, and we know that you love to answer that prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.